We are in our second week of our walk through Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 2 today. So just to catch some of you up to speed, if you weren't here last week or you may have forgotten, here's the context. You have Naomi, whose family fled Bethlehem when there was a famine. They went to Moab, which we saw last week was a bad idea for a lot of different, different reasons. In Moab, uh, she and her husband Elimelech married off their sons to Moabite women, which was another bad idea, and we discussed why last week. And then tragedy strikes Naomi. Her husband Elimelech dies, her two sons die, and so she's left with no food, she's left with no family, and these two daughters-in-law that she now has to try and take care of. So in the midst of that, she hears that, that food has returned to Bethlehem and she begins to, to go back to her home. In the process of going home, she does her best to convince these two young women to go back to Moab, try and find some family there, reconnect, try and start over there because they're going to have a lot better chance there than they would as a foreigner back in Bethlehem. And so one daughter-in-law, Orpah, she agrees, she returns home, but, Naomi, but Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, she doubles down on her commitment to Naomi and her commitment to Naomi's God, making a very significant vow, saying, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. So she makes this significant vow. And now, as they're returning to Bethlehem, we get to see the providence of God on display in the bleakest and the darkest scenario that, that really many of us could imagine. No family, no food, don't know what you're going to do. One, uh, one pastor said that chapter one, in chapter one, there were dark clouds over the heads of Naomi and Ruth. And in chapter two, you see this hole open up and sun shining through. And over the course of the chapter, the hole gets wider and wider. So we get to look at a really fun chapter this morning where God's providence breaks into the bleakest, the darkest, and the most desperate of, search, of situations. I was talking at dinner this week with my kids and I asked them, what is the providence of God? And after some discussion, they agreed it was a piece of land. I don't know, it, not, not the province of God, although I don't even know where, where that would, that would be everything. The providence of God. That's why I, we had Chuck read the catechism earlier. We know that God's works of providence are the holy, wise, and powerful acts by which he preserves and governs all his creatures and their actions. So do you know what a game changer it is to really know and believe that there is a good God who knows about, cares about, and is engaged in every single aspect of your life? That's a really big deal. And I don't want to minimize anxiety. But how much of the anxiety we experience do you think comes from simply being acutely aware of all of our inabilities to control every aspect of our life? You know, how much turmoil do we go through in our lives worrying about things that never even happen? And that's particularly hard when God says he gives us grace for all the situations we really do find ourselves in, but he never has any promises for the grace for, grace for all the worst possible scenarios we can dream up on a daily basis. And then it gets even more complicated when we have people like televangelists saying that 
talking about God's providence and saying that his will is that you would be happy, healthy, and wealthy in this life. And if that's not happening, something's wrong with you. So then how do we process the providence of God with teaching like that when our lives are really hard, when we're suffering, when we're in trials, when we're in pain? And this is where Ruth chapter 2 just shines. Because we get to understand the providence of God. We get to see the providence of God on display in this unbelievably bleak situation. And in this chapter, we specifically see three things. We see the display of God's providence first. Then we see the effects of embracing God's providence. And then finally, we see the basis of God's providence. So we're just going to walk through the story this morning. And that's what we're going to look at. First, the display of God's providence. We see, the, we see God's providence displayed in five very specific ways as we walk through this chapter. First, we see his providence displayed through suffering. I mean, that's the context. And I know that's not like the, the, <laughs> the most hopeful point to start out with when we're talking about the providence of God, but we have to acknowledge that suffering is also under, under his direction. And I, we're looking at suffering that I don't emotionally fully even know how to fully engage with. He's talking about the loss of a spouse and all the children and potentially even food to eat. But if we're going to take scripture seriously about how far it says God's providence goes, then we have to recognize his leading in our trials as much as we do our successes. And in the story What's so helpful is we're able to see God's purpose behind the suffering. I mean, you can see his purpose all, just in chapter one alone. You see that he uses the suffering to call Naomi home, to call Naomi out of sin, back to her home, back to her covenant people, and back into a relationship with him. You can see the way God uses the suffering in Ruth's life. He pulls Ruth, a pagan woman in a pagan society, out of that society, and as, as we can already see is happening and many of us know will happen, brings her into the fold of the covenant people of God. So we see purpose behind the suffering. Sometimes it's through the greatest sufferings that God sets the stage for his greatest triumphs. David Platt says that sometimes it is when God seems farthest from us that he's really laying the foundations of the greatest displays of faithfulness to us. So we see his providence as suffering. Second, we see his providence through nature. The food has come back. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has bread again. And we, we need to be careful. We're not just thinking about providence in terms of human interactions. Everything that happens, anything that happens, happens because it was ordained by God. And that includes the very food growing from the ground. Psalm 104, 14 says just that. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. So we see his nature through, his providence through nature. And then third, we can see God's providence on display through what we might call chance. And this is really where we begin to pick up the story. Let's read together starting in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Okay, so we're, the author, nobody in the story knows this yet, but the author's telling us there's a marriable man in the clan. We talked last week about how important that would be. So the author's listening, no, he's there. 
And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who, just in case you forgot, two verses ago, was of the clan of Elimelech. Just happened. She just happened, as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, chapter to mosey into the best field ever for her situation. The Hebrew literally says chance chanced. She chance chanced into the best field ever. We, we might sarcastically say something like, as luck would have it. As luck would have it, she, she found herself in this field. And we all know the author of this book. He did not believe in blind luck. He's, he's saying this very sarcastically because he knows as well as every Bible-believing Christian that there is no such thing as chance or coincidence in the economy of God. Everything is under his control. Everything that happens is ordained to happen. And this is the kind of providence that saved my wife's life. When we were in our 20s, we lived in Italy. She was pregnant with our first child and the ministry we were working for uh, was making some changes that would cause us to relocate. So by chance, we ended up in Mississippi, which by chance is where her dad is a doctor. And when she by chance happened to double over in pain one day, we were by chance in the only place in the world that will be able to find her cancer in 48 hours. If we were in any other state, it would have been two months of, of tests. If we were in Italy, it would have been six to eight months with their socialized medicine. But because we were in the only state where her dad was practicing medicine, all these doctors let her in on, on their spare time. And in 48 hours, she was in surgery. And all this becomes particularly relevant when the surgeon comes back and said, we had two weeks before the cancer went everywhere. By chance... We happened to be in the one place in the world where we could find it in time and fix it. Nothing happens by chance. Fourth, we see God's providence on display through his law. Picking up at verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? That's ancient Hebrew for check her out. (laughs) And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So what Ruth is doing is taking advantage of the laws of Israel because in Deuteronomy 24, verse 19, we read, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So we see God providentially providing for the poor through these kinds of commandments. Specifically in Ruth's case, when, when people went through a field and they, they harvested, they couldn't go back and pick up the droppings. And they, they also couldn't 
they couldn't harvest certain parts of the edges of the field so that the poor could come in and they could have enough to at least eat. It wouldn't have been a lot, of, a lot of food, a lot of barley to be able to harvest, but it would have been enough to feed the poor. And we see God providing this kind of way through his laws. Over and over in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 15, we have a law that provides for the poor, saying every three years, a 10% offering was taken up to provide for the poor. Also, in Deuteronomy 15, we, we see that the debts of the families were canceled every seven years. So every seven years, the poor got a new beginning. In Leviticus 25, there was actually a Sabbath for the land. You could not harvest your land. And the intention of the law was that to give the land rest, but if, you know, whatever happened to pop up from, from what was left over from the years before, that was there for the poor. And then you have the biggie, the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years, all the land went back to their original owners. So if you have families that fell on bad times and they lost their land every 50 years it was restored to them and I think it's important for us to see the way that the Lord provided through his law and the types of laws that we're looking at are specifically the Israeli national laws and I'm not saying that we should import all of Israeli national laws into our U.S. government. I wouldn't even know how to start. (laughs) How you take agrarian, rural, ancient law and import it into a very complex, urban, global market. I I don't know how, how you do that. But I will say there are principles. Because we believe that the law was given for the flourishing of men. There are principles that we can bring in that can inform the way that we make our laws today. So one principle that I think we see very clearly here. We have left-leaning people who would say the poor should primarily be taken care of by the government. We have right-leaning people who would look at the benevolence of Boaz and say the poor should primarily be taken care of through the benevolence of the individuals in society. Here, though, we very much see both. And that should inform the way that we think about the poor being handled among us. Fifth, we see God's providence through God's people. So here we cue the knight in shining armor. Let's read verses eight and nine. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And this would have been crazy talk in, in, to the original readers because Israelites were served by Moabites. Men were served by women. And here you have Israelite men being commanded to serve a Moabite woman. And here is where we set the stage for the first date. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even from the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. 
So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So we see Boaz going well beyond what the law had, had dictated that he was supposed to do. He's giving her roasted grain. Guys, you really want to know how to treat your woman? Roasted grain. She gets to dip her bread in the good stuff. I'm thinking Olive Garden here. He lets her eat until she's full, and then she has leftovers, and he allows her to take grain, not just the leftover areas. She's able to begin to harvest from what has yet to really be touched. And it all comes together, and she walks away full with an ephah of barley. And who can't appreciate what an ephah is? So imagine going to Walmart and finding the biggest bag of Great Dane dog food, all right? Fill that with barley, and that's about an ephah. Somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley she walks away with, which is particularly significant when you realize that the average wage of the men working in that field would have been about two pounds per day. So we remember at the beginning of this chapter, there are two big problems for Ruth and Naomi. They lack food and they lack family. And so the food is really starting to to be dealt with through God's providence and nature and his law and providing through his people. But here we begin to have an inkling that maybe the family situation could be solved as well. Verse 18. And she took it up and went into the city, it being the ephah of barley. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen redeemers. Wow. So she happens into this field where she happens to meet not only the most generous field owner we can imagine, but he is one of the few people that Ruth could marry and keep that really significant vow that she's already made to Naomi. And I have to just stop and try to put myself in Naomi's footsteps for a moment she sees Ruth come back after just one day one day of being gone and she has more food than they could have probably expected to put together in a month and and not just barley to make food but food Ruth was full and giving Naomi her leftovers and then she tells her whose field it was that she was in And it may be helpful to remember how Israel was made up. The smallest unit would have been a household. So the idea of an individual was almost non-existent. We have our smallest unit now as an individual, but their smallest was a household. And then you had related households that made up a clan, and you had related clans that made up a tribe. And so the only way that Ruth could marry and, and keep this commitment that she had made, this vow she had made to Naomi was to marry within the clan of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, and Boaz was in that clan. And so they're starting to realize all these pieces are coming together in this one field that she just happened 
to go and glean from. And I think that would have been plenty of story here. We, didn't, we wouldn't need anything more to just see God's grandness and providence on display. But then it goes even further. Not only is this man marriable, but he's a good man. It says that he's a man of good standing, which means that he's godly or wealthy or maybe both. I think we can have a lot of reason to believe both. And not only is he generous, he cares about this outcast, Ruth. He crosses significant cultural barriers to take care of her. So Boaz is starting to make your average knight in shining armor look pretty average at this point. So these are the five ways that we see God's providence on display in the story. Working for the good of Ruth and Naomi. And now I want to look at all the ways that this providence affects Ruth and Naomi. So this is the effects of embracing God's providence. There is this really prevalent idea that a big God is averse to our initiative. So if we believe in a big God who is really working for our good via his providence in every area of our life, there's this fear that well, if we really embrace that, then it's going to cause us to not work as hard. It's going to cause us not to, to be as motivated to do things like pray and share faith and work towards our personal holiness because God has ordained everything. But all throughout scripture, and especially in the story, we see that that view can't be supported in any way. I mean, first look at Ruth. Ruth understands God's providence from the beginning. She has fully committed herself to God in chapter one. So she comes in and we see that this devotion to a God who she believes is in control, it only increases her motivation. It increases her initiative. So, I mean, we obviously saw her go to Bethlehem. We see in verse two, she goes to the field. We see in verses seven and 17 that she's a very hard worker. And then we not only see that her belief in God doesn't hinder her work, but as things pick up, you have this impression that the more she sees God's providence come to bear, the harder she wants to work. And it makes sense, if you really think about it, that that God's working and God's providence and God's ordaining would increase our motivation. Because if you're on a team and you know that team is going to win, you're going to be all the motivated to work harder. Even if that means the journey is going to be hard, you know you're going to finish well. And because you know you're going to finish well, you know what's on the other side of these struggles, you're motivated to try harder, to work harder, to pray harder. And we see this in the life of Paul also. When Paul was in Corinth, he was scared for some reason. We can guess as to why. I don't have time for that, but he's scared. And then God shows up to him in a vision. God says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in the city who are my people. So that's exactly what Paul did. Paul got up, he wasn't scared, he went. And incidentally, we see that this initiative that should come from understanding that God is providentially working, it falls into evangelism as well. Because God was saying, I have many people in the city, people who have yet to hear the gospel, people who have yet to believe, but they're still mine. And does Paul hear this and say, well, I guess there's no role for me then if you've already ordained everything. No, he's more motivated to go and to share the gospel with people because he knows God's working. He's going ahead via his providence. 
So we see that if we embrace God's providence, it increases our initiative in every way, including evangelism, but it also humbles us. Ruth is an extremely humble person. She goes into this field and it's, it's stated in God's law that she should be able to glean, but she doesn't go and demand her rights. She humbly re- requests. She doesn't presume. She models what it means to be a humble person because you believe that God is going forward, that God is gonna take care of you, that is going to provide for you. A proper understanding of providence cannot coexist with human pride. The more we understand that we serve a big God who loves us, who cares about us, who is going before us in every possible way, there will be a direct correlation to the death of our pride and the rise of our humility. But Ruth isn't the only one being affected by God's providence here. Thirdly, we see something else in Naomi. We see that an understanding of God's providence, it softens hearts. Did you notice in the text that Naomi didn't go to glean? First day back, it's the harvest and she didn't go. And maybe she was old, maybe she was poor of health, but nothing states that in the text. I, I look at this and I get the feeling that she's, she's downcast, she's depressed. She doesn't want to go and work. She, as we saw in chapter one, she believed there was a God, but she felt like he had nothing but judgment towards her and it shut her down. But look at what happens the moment Naomi's, <laughs> to Naomi's spirits, the moment she realized what happens to be happening. We're picking up at the moment Naomi is realizing what all has happened. Ruth 2.20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So can you see her heart softening? Can you see the wheels of hope and belief beginning to spin? At least for the first time in a long time, maybe for the first time ever. Unlike Ruth, she had to see it to believe it, but she sees God's providence coming about and it softens her heart. And then we see Naomi's initiative begin to build. But there's still one huge question that we haven't answered. In the context, it's Ruth's question of Boaz. Why are you doing any of this for me? But in our context, it's God. Why are you doing any of this for me? And we can answer both questions by starting with Ruth 2.10. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? So the question that Ruth is asking Boaz is the same question we ask of God. Why do you do any of this good stuff for us? We are rebellious foreigners. So I want to finish by answering that question. The basis for God's providence. She can't believe the favor that she's being shown. She asks, why are you doing this? And here's Boaz's response. 
all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So upon first cursory reading, it could seem like Taking care of your mother-in-law is the way into Boaz's good graces and God's good graces. And if you're a mother-in-law, I would, not, uh, I, would, I would not knock you for using this verse out of context to be taken care of. <laughs> but that's not what this passage is saying. All of this hinges on these words, under whose. So everything that Ruth has been doing, all these good things that Boaz is naming is because of, is proof of her having taken refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And that triggers this unconditional love that Boaz has for Ruth. And then we look at Ruth's response in verse 213. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And it's not just Ruth who sees this. Naomi sees it as well. If you go back to verse 20, and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, this is the third time I've read this text, so better believe this is a very important verse. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness. If you have an old school paper Bible, I want you to circle that word kindness. Has not forsaken the living or the dead. So that's an easy way of saying anyone Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. And this word kindness that Naomi is using, it's it's the Hebrew word hesed. And what is communicated in this word hesed is a loving commitment that has everything to do with the commitment of the giver of that love and little to do with the merits of the person receiving that love. And so what we begin to see in this little passage is the story of the whole Bible. Because all of us, all of us are pagan, rebellious, foreign Moabites who don't merit God's love in any way. But God, through his providence, he breaks through into our hearts, calls us out of our land, out of our ways. He makes us one of his own and then binds us to the rest of his people. And if there's any doubt of God's said towards us, it's sealed on the cross as Jesus Christ is paying all of the penalty of our sin so that we can truly say that the basis of our relationship with God, it has nothing to do with any of our merits, has everything to do with the merits of Jesus Christ who paid everything for us and everything to do with the love of God the Father toward us. That's chesed. That's what everything in the Old Testament is pointing toward and it's the core of this story in chapter two of Ruth. Stepping out slightly, we, are in, in, we have now encountered my wife's favorite time of year, Hallmark Christmas movie season. <laughs> and if you've never watched a Hallmark movie, you're just fine. 
But let me explain every single hall. There's basically one Hallmark movie, okay? It's one movie in hundreds of different forms with about six different actors. And, and the formula is the same from start to finish. You are in the very beginning of the movie given a desire. And it's always that two people would come together. And then all these horrible scenarios play out and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this desire may not happen. And then somewhere between the minutes of eight and 10 remaining, eight and 10 minutes remaining, everything comes together. It's always eight and 10 minutes. One story, many different ways it comes out. But in the final minutes, the thing you desired most always comes to happen. And I began to realize that this is a picture of God's providence. Because we're given all these desires in our life. These, and it's not worldly desires like on a Hallmark movie. But we're given desires that we would really bear the image we were designed to have. That we would have bodies that wouldn't be inhibited by all these, the, the pride and the hate and, and the pain of just growing old and dying. We desire that we would live in a world without strife. And we desire that we would have a relationship with God unhindered by sin. And what we see in the Bible, the way that these Hallmark movies point forward to this is that we will always, always get the thing that we desire if we take refuge under his wings. Because it's not based on our merits, it's based on his said. So no matter how dark the season, no matter how bleak the trial. If we are taking refuge under his wings, we are recipients of his said, and this story will end well. So as irresistible as this offer for Ruth and Boaz seems, It's a million times more irresistible when we see who we are and the chesed that is offered us through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we come to you thankful for all the ways that you pursue us, for all the ways that you love us and provide for us, And we come to you acknowledging that we are so bad off. We don't even have the ability to see you as our answer, to see you as the thing that we long for. So we pray that you would continually open our hearts, that you would go before everything, that you would open eyes, heal hearts, and help us to want you and to desire you and to enjoy your chesed more every single day. And that we would be a sent people that we wouldn't just bunker up and enjoy this great gift that we have together, but that we would be going out to the city, to our homes, our workplaces, and people would be able to see that we have something different. And we would be excited to talk about that something different. We know that is your will, and so we come to you and ask that it would be true here today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son, and we pray this in his name. Amen.